O God of all beauty, who declared upon the creation of the cosmos, behold, it was very good, and it is good to live in this amazing world that you have made. It is good to heed your command and to be your people and to worship you in all of your beauty. It is good to be here in this place on this Lord's Day morning to hear songs of praise so beautifully sung and to worship you and to turn our attention to your word. Help us to see your beauty and our role in it this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In comparison with his bright eldest brother, according to his father, this younger son at the age of seven was, quote, very backward in speech and somewhat slow of comprehension, but of a docile and amiable disposition. Thanks, Dad. While not much is recorded about the accomplishments of his other siblings, we do know quite a bit about this one, this amiable, docile one. When the boy was 11, his father died just after going bankrupt, plunging the family into poverty. And so to help out his family, to help support them at the age of 12, he left school and he went to work in a bank in Albany, New York, after which he worked in one of his brother's stores selling fur caps. At 18, he taught school in the country but left after three months to take a brief course in engineering, hoping to prepare for a construction job on the Erie Canal, but jobs were scarce. And so his older brother scrambled around and found him a summer job as a cabin boy on the St. Lawrence, a merchant ship sailing from New York to Liverpool. And this led to three out of the next five years spent at sea, traveling around the world which turned out to be quite the education for a young man with no trade, no profession, and no fortune. And the particularly life-changing voyage commenced on January of 1841, when he joined the crew of the whaler Akushnet and set out from Buzzards Bay for the vast reaches of the South Pacific and the ensuing travails and travels that followed, including deserting his ship and living on a South Sea island. He thought he was going down one valley in this island to a peaceable tribe, but he took the wrong turn and wound up with cannibals. That journey ultimately ended on October 3rd, 1844, when he finally arrived back in Boston aboard a U.S. frigate. Those three chaotic years at sea equipped Herman Melville to be what D.H. Lawrence called the greatest seer and poet of the sea. Indeed, Moby Dick, Melville's sixth book, came out of those years at sea, and many of us have actually embarked on it or tried to read it all the way through in terms of its epic voyage, have we not? Call me Ishmael, some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. What a great opening sentence in this novel, this classic novel in our Americana. And yes, again, many have set sail, but few ride the novel's turbulent waves or endure its doldrums clear through its 135 chapters 
encompassing over 500 pages. But to be sure, it is an American classic of oceanic proportion featuring mammoth literary skill and creativity. This morning, speaking of creativity and beauty, literary or otherwise, we resume our little summer series on beauty to pick up on the theme of beauty and human creativity. Last week, you might recall, we saw in connection with Genesis 131 that beauty is God's idea. God not only acts creation, but God reacts to what he's created. The God of creation makes the cosmos. He faces his handiwork and declares, we said, with the grammar of delight, it was very good. And this is God's aesthetic evaluation. As for us, in this room created in the image of God, one way humanity reflects that image is through our own creativity, further developing the diversity of beauty the triune God has already set in play before us. And our creative participation in the cultivation and advancement of beauty as an affirmation of life in God's it's very good world honors him and reflects him. In this sense, we serve as his apprentices. Now, before we turn to some of the beautiful creative endeavors and what they mean, uh, the endeavors of our compatriots in humanity, let's first note that in the Bible, the center of human creativity is in the precinct of God's presence. The center of human creativity is in the precinct of God's presence. I want to read you two verses from Exodus 39. So the sons of Israel did all the work according to all the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses examined all the work and behold they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. This they had done. So Moses blessed them. Those words conclude the construction of the tabernacle. You know, the tabernacle, that portable tent that the Hebrews took with them in their Sinai wilderness journey where they set up this tent and the presence of God dwelt in the midst of his people and there in worship they met him. The tabernacle was not just thrown together by some random design that Aaron and Moses concocted as they traipsed around the desert leading this people or because they were perusing some ancient predecessor of L.L. Bean catalog. Hey, Aaron, check out page 42. There's a cool tent. It might do. No, the very explicit instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and then later the temple, as we were looking at earlier in Scripture, those instructions are given by God. He doesn't delegate the design. But to complete his design, God provides and empowers craftsmen to do what he wants them to do, craftsmen with key skills. So he has design specs that you can read about in Exodus and key people that he has involved in this construction and also, of course, of the temple. So both the intricate design as well as the materials used to fit God's specs also fit God's purpose. And the tabernacle has a deliberate look in two directions. Our focus this morning is on the look in one direction, not the other. It's to look backwards. It looks backwards at the Garden of Eden. Now, it also looks forward at the Eden to come, so to speak. That's a whole nother sermon. But what they look backward to, as we're talking about this sermon, is the Garden of Eden. That's because the Garden of Eden was, you could say, 
the original temple in which God dwelled with Adam and Eve. It's where they met him face to face, where they walked with him, where they knew him. And the tabernacle in the wilderness and the later temple in Jerusalem were designed in such a way with stunning artistry to reflect the beauty of the garden and to recall that reality of God in the garden, the presence of God with his people. So it comes by divine design. It features intentional craftsmanship. It is meticulous in its planning and its execution. And ultimately, it all points to the divine presence. So that's why, for instance, and I'm just cherry-picking a few things out of this, both the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and the walls of the holy place, as we heard in 2 Chronicles 3, in Solomon's temple, feature carved cherubim. Do you remember how after the fall, cherubim were set in place to guard the garden and to keep all, out all that is impure and unholy? God's direct presence and human sin can't coexist apart from the merciful means of atonement, which, of course, the rituals of the tabernacle and the temple will later provide. But the cherubim's duty is to guard the entrance leading to the tree of life. So the presence of the cherubim in the tabernacle and in the temple are designed to point back to the Garden of Eden and to remind people of the holy presence of God. The same is true, for example, of all the carved reliefs of palm trees and flowers and hundreds of pomegranates. You think pomegranates are an invention of Costco. No, they're not. All this botanical, arboreal imagery is meant to convey a garden-like appearance. And often in these passages, they are covered in solid gold and jewels, precious metals that reflect light in part to imitate the shining glimmer of sun and moon and stars in the heavens above. Why? To remind all that God is the Lord of the cosmos. He is the one who is to be worshipped. He is the one who commands all worship. Sometime if you go to New York City on a little trip, I would highly recommend that you go to the Eldridge Street Synagogue down on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. It's actually now in Chinatown. Chinatown sort of has come around it through the years. It's this incredible synagogue, stunning in its beauty, Moorish architecture. When it opened in September of 1887, it represented the religious aspirations of Yiddish-speaking Eastern European Jews. And when you go in this newly restored synagogue, which had gone through horrible decay, and the ceiling had caved in, and all sorts of terrible things had happened. And finally, over time, and great millions of dollars, it was restored. It's a functioning, active synagogue. But when you go in, and you look up, right above the central area of seating is a dome with a blue backdrop and glittering stars on it. Why? Because in connection with Jewish faith and history, of course. The Lord is the Lord of the cosmos, and when you are in worship, you are worshiping this Lord. Now that motif, of course, has continued into other traditions as well. Same is true in Catholic and Orthodox churches above the altar. And all this imagery is there in the tabernacle and the temple to remind us of Eden and God's it is very good moment. Now, of course, the kings of the ancient Near East had lush manicured gardens to reinforce the splendor of their majesty. My daughter and Laurel Brooks are off traipsing around Europe for mm -hmm. a month. They'll be back next week, and they recently were in France, and they went to Versailles. 
And so there's this great picture of Julia standing on the steps of Versailles going, give them cupcakes. <laughs> this is a very Julia moment, but think of it. Palaces, their splendor, and their gardens. That's what this all is meant to evoke. Finally, it took seven years to build the temple. Later on, it was dedicated in the seventh month during the Feast of Tabernacles, echoing the creation of the world in seven days. Now, there's a whole lot more we could say about this, but let's go back to Exodus 39. Why? Because following the construction of the tabernacle, these concluding words that we read deliberately echo God's words after he created the world when he said, and behold, it was very good. These words mirror those words. Hear them again. So the sons of Israel did all the work according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, and Moses examined all the work, and behold, they had done it. Just as the Lord had commanded, this they had done, so Moses blessed them. So think of it this way. Genesis 1, God created the world. Exodus 39, the sons of Israel did the work. Genesis 1:31, God saw all that he had made. Exodus 39, Moses examined all the work. Genesis 1:31, God's evaluation, behold, it was very good. Exodus 39, and behold, aha, they had done it. Genesis 2, the heavens and the earth were completed. Exodus 40, so Moses finished the work. Genesis 2, so God blessed the seventh day. Exodus 39, so Moses blessed them. Now the point of belaboring all this is to say that the very same God who gave his aesthetic pronouncement of very good with respect to the works of his hand then calls for the same commitment to beauty from his people through the works of their hands. And following his command to create the tabernacle and temple designed to reflect the very good and beautiful things that God created and his primacy overall their craftsmanship mirrors his in their own commitment to beauty. Now, while the center of human creativity is in the precinct of God's presence, Eden, temple, tabernacle, temple of the living God, here we are, it spills over by God's design, since we are created in the image of God, it spills over into the beautiful things that we create in our world. So as people went forth from the garden, creativity and beauty go forth in centrifugal fashion with them. And this in its own way, even if unintentional on the part of our world, who largely doesn't know God, it still in its own way points to God. The things that God does and the things that God has created provide the model and the raw material for our own beautiful human creativity. And then that leads us to this point. The expression of human creativity and beauty is actually, whether we admit it or not in our world, it is the overflow of God's grace. Whether or not the world acknowledges it, all its expression of healthy creativity and beauty are the result of being created in the image of God as we serve the world in this sense as his apprentices. Indeed, archaeologists have yet to discover any stage of human existence without some form of art whether it's cave art, going back thousands of years in France, or something that's created in worship, yes, perverted perhaps, but some beautiful object created for worship in the ancient Near East. And in addition to beauty of worship, some of the beauty is so obvious to us. 
And I'm going to give you a long list, a very incomplete list. So if there's something that you can think of that I haven't, it's just because I'm dull and dim-winded, as we saw early on in the sermon, so you can add this. So what we deem as great art, from east and west and north and south, ancient and modern, representative or conceptual, classical or modernist, expressionism or impressionism, whether it's exquisite in its fine details or plain in some sense in its broad strokes, music of many styles from many lands, from a Mozart concerto to John Coltrane saxophone solo. I would add country music in there, but that's a sign of the fall. You're going to get some opinion in this sermon. That's just the way it is. Get used to it. Have you ever heard of Alphaeus Babcock? I hadn't until yesterday. Dave Rocks told me he's the inventor of the cast iron piano frame. So if you look in that piano, you see a cast iron frame. What's that frame do? It helps provide not just structure to the piano, but a consistency of sound. They used to be wooden. And so all the issues of heat and humidity and so forth, which already affect the piano, affected the piano even more greatly. But it helps maintain beautiful sound. Musical instrumentation, the way violins are crafted, and the sheen and the shine to reflect beauty, sculpture, tools, artifacts, tools. Let's just back up. I once gave Elizabeth hedge trimmers for Mother's Day. Beautiful gift. She was not fully appreciative. Artifacts, decorations, What do you do at Christmas? Unless you're a Puritan, glass making, pottery, jewelry, photography, printmaking, filmmaking, speech, argumentation, rhetoric, philosophy, literature, a Shakespearean sonnet, imagination, poetry with perfect iambic pentameter, drama. Think of all the great dramas that have come to us through the centuries and millennia. Think about an elaborate Japanese tea ceremony, design of all kinds, industrial design. Think of your iPhone, which you have turned off. Thank you so very much. Why do we like our iPhones or smartphones? They have design elements to them. It's a slab of glass, but we cover up the design completely in a huge rubber contraption, right? Because we don't want to break the artwork. Clocks. Incredible clock over there in that building. Furniture, engineering feats, architecture, grand and modest, skyscrapers, palaces, pillars, roofs, homes, large and small, skylines, skylights, shipbuilding, aircraft, sleek and fast. Bridges spanning rivers and bays. Who can look at the Brooklyn Bridge and say it's ugly? Who can look at the Golden Gate Bridge and say it doesn't stir you in some sense? Bicycles. Yes, bicycles. Plumbing. (laughs) Yes. Plumbing. Roman and modern. We love it when it works. (laughs) Lights, multicolored and bright. Gravestones with a verse on them or an etching about the one there. Tombstones with their elaborate construction. Computer engineering. Computer code. Complex mathematical formula, silicon chips, graphic design, textiles, get a job, Julia, fashion, 
adornment, gardening, landscape architecture, carpentry, farming, the paper store with lovely wrapping paper, setting your dinner table, as we said last week, food arranged on a plate, swirls from Atomic Cafe in Cappuccino, <laughs> beauty in multiple ways, arranging your living room and putting a candle on a windowsill. That doesn't even cover a fraction of the types of beauty that we are involved in as humanity. Now, whether this beauty is of an upper tier or lower tier, intricate or simple, it is beauty nonetheless, and it is all around us by our own creation. There is an intentional aesthetic to virtually everything we make, and the very presence and desire for beauty ensures that what we make is more than mere utility. For though many things are designed to be used by us, that does not mean that the beauty, however great or small we deem it to be, that's in them is of little or no consequence or is outright negated. Take, for example, something as mundane as the fork. What gets more utilitarian than the implement you use to shovel food in your mouth? And though the humble fork is churned out by a factory, it reflects at least a minimum of design and artistry. Hence, a variety of shapes and metals and plastics are used so that it can fit the occasion of your consumption. There's a difference, you know, between silverware and cutlery. My grandma, who grew up as a young adult in the Great Depression and lived in a very humble farmhouse in northwest Iowa and then in Nebraska and ultimately moved to Denver, Colorado. She grew up with that Depression era forging her view of life and stuff. And so Grandma only brought out valuable items for occasions that were correspondingly suitable. So she brought out her silver at Christmas, not for picnics, for Christmas and Easter to lend elegance and beauty to a specific occasion, something completely lost on a 12-year-old boy who, with other things on his mind, thought dinner with fancy forks was a huge inconvenience. For design simplicity, think of our own church meeting house, designed and built in colonial New England with architectural features more in common with a barn than with a cathedral. Because when it comes to our church's forefathers, they've been accused of having more of a Protestant ascetic than aesthetic. And yet there's a form of beauty found in the expression of simplicity. And this style of architecture, it's a reaction, yes, to the perceived excesses of other previous styles, medieval. Nevertheless, it too has its own resonant beauty. Now obviously some of the things we create can become surrogate gods, reflecting of the gods of our culture. They can be nothing more than an eye shrine indicative of a temporarily useful but ultimately shallow substitute for transcendence. And some things mock the beautiful and are intentionally twisted and appropriated for repulsive and downright evil purposes. It is really interesting, and I would add both sobering and enlightening, to ponder that even in the terrible, ugly, and morally heinous concentration camps in Europe during World War II, with their orderly rows of barracks and the maniacal structure of the day, 
all intended to degrade and demean, to take away any semblance of dignity and artistry. Even there, amid the terror, what did the occupants often do, even with gas chambers spewing smoke in the background? They refused to abandon their intentional quest and need for beauty and its expression despite the demeaning ugliness and degradation they were currently being subjected to. So in one such camp, 2,300 lectures, more than one for each day of the camp's existence, were given on topics ranging from art to medicine, economics, and Jewish history. Verdi's Requiem was sung in this camp. Hundreds of musical works were composed. Poetry was recited. Art blossomed. Children drew and painted. Artwork, which we're told beyond its own intrinsic value, is a testimony to the courage of the children and their teachers who continue to live, to teach, to paint, to learn, to hope, despite the constant fear of violent death, a fear based on a realistic assessment of the situation in which they found themselves. Yet they sang, and they listened, and they painted, and they performed. Surely, this desire, this quest, this need to create beauty, even and especially in situations of incomprehensible human repugnance and ugliness, it's directly reflective of this irrepressible aspect of the image of God in us, which cannot be obliterated by us, no matter how demeaning people are to us. They affirm transcendence. They hint at the source of beauty and the quest for beauty even amid the fallen, and what it means to be human. Perhaps this is what Dostoevsky intimates when he wrote, beauty will save the world. Then, of course, there's the beauty that is deliberately part and parcel of our celebrations. Yesterday we had a wedding. Greg Lothar, Melissa Tucker, a lot of beautiful design went into that wedding. And even in Situations and places of abject poverty, celebrations are seen as the opportunity for human creativity and beauty to shine. And so the best clothes are brought out. The best foods are prepared. The song is raised. The dancing goes on deep into the night. This is beautiful. I'll never forget what a woman in the slums in New Delhi told me many years ago, a very poor woman whose husband supported the family on approximately $30 a month that he gleaned and gained from selling discarded plastic bags. She says, I may be poor, but I don't have to look poor. She took pride in her appearance. So in short, why do we create things that are beautiful and used for beautiful life-affirming purposes? Three things, and then I close. One, created in the image of God, we can't help but do so. And even in our world, when they shake their fists at him and deny that he is, even yet we are drawn to beauty, to make it, to crave it, to enjoy it. We come to it like a moth in the summer to a light in the yard. We need it because it helps us know who we are. This need arises from our metaphysical condition. Number two, beauty that we create pleases us. Sigh of satisfaction, the sense of wonder and accomplishment, true appreciation, it took my breath away, said 
of someone else's work or even our own. This is beauty's, quote, soul-shaking impact, end quote. And all of these are our own way of saying much as God did, it was very good. That's his aesthetic evaluation of the perfect work of his hands, and it is our own evaluation of the work of our own. Created beauty pleases us. Third, I want to reassert yet again that beauty, whether in God's creation or as the result of our own creativity, as a consequence of being in his image, it is a hint and an echo of something, someone, who is infinitely beautiful. Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it this way, like the tiny mirror of the fairy tale, you look into it and see not yourself, but for one fleeting moment, the unattainable to which you cannot leap or fly. And the heart aches, and the heart aches. And whether it's the beauty of God's creation or arising from our own human creativity, we don't just look at it, as we said last week, we look through it like a window revealing the beauty beyond, namely God. To speak of beauty is to enter into another more exalted realm, a realm sufficiently apart from our everyday concerns. So our creativity is part of our everyday life, but it points to something beyond our everyday life, even as it gives us conversation in this everyday life. Quote, art remains a fleeting guest in this world which makes the world uneasy because it brings news of a different world. What use is there in it? Like some cherub, he brings down to us a few songs of paradise so that having awakened wingless desire in us children of dust, he flies away afterwards. Yes, this guest, this beauty, not only gilds life that would otherwise be drab and gray, but if we truly look Truly listen, truly feel. Beauty points us and others to the author of life itself. Which is why, created in his image and redeemed by his son, Christians of all people should be committed to furthering beauty in our world and to speaking of the beautiful Savior who spoke this world into existence, and who alone will bring us to our destined beauty. Let's pray. Lord, this room has artists of many kinds in it. They spend laborious hours writing computer code so things work. They write and conduct drama. There are architects and landscape architects. There are plumbers and engineers of all sorts. There are homemakers who make sure a home is in order and is a beautiful place for a family to come home to. There's no end to the expression of beauty in this beautiful people that you have created. Help us as we go forth, created in the image of God and redeemed to reflect the beauty of our Savior, to pursue beauty in this world as an avenue 
by which conversations related to hope may in fact occur. We love you. Thank you for the miracle of who we are by your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.